the word of the Holy Spirit from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. <clears throat> and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oaths is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I was doing my study this week, um, I'm thinking a lot about the Sunday morning. Um, there was something that just struck me, how precious it is that we have it, but I don't know if we really recognize or take time to just contemplate how wonderful and what a gift it is. And it's a gift that began in the very beginning, if, if, you, if you take your Bibles and you turn to Genesis Chapter 1, there's, there's, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then there's three words that I think we just skim over when we, we think of this. And God said. And God spoke with Adam and Eve in the garden. God spoke directly to them and had conversations with them. And the one time in the history of the world that God could have gone silent, he didn't. After Adam and Eve sinned against him and rebelled, God came down knowing full well what they had done. And he spoke to them again. And even when Cain killed Abel, God spoke. And in good times and in bad, God has continued to speak throughout the word of God. And it has been such a blessing that our God, who rightly could have abandoned us and forsaken us, even when the sin of the world was so egregious and so bad that God said, I regret making mankind, God turned to Noah and he spoke. And in God speaking, God has made a way to believe in him and to know him as God. And God has revealed himself to us 
so that we might have salvation through this myriad of brokenness and sin and destruction that we continually participate in and enjoy. God speaks. The hope of the passage that we're going to look at today is God spoke. And, and this passage opens up with in Hebrews chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you to get it open on your phone or on your iPad or your, your, your whatever device you've got with you this morning. Or there's a pew Bible in front of you and it's on page, I believe we're on page 1004 this morning. But Hebrews chapter 6, and this, this story opens up with another story. I've said several times that I would think Hebrews is this perfectly wonderful written sermon. And the author of Hebrews, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is referencing all these different Old Testament stories and imageries. And he does so here in chapter 6, verse 13, and for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by him to swear, swear he swore by himself. So God is referencing back to a promise he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. God was going to call out a family to become a nation. And so God spoke to Abraham. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I, he made this promise to Abraham. I want you to get up and leave the land of Ur, leave the land of your fathers, leave everything you've ever known. You do this, and I will bless you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will give you a land of promise. He made this promise to Abraham. So Abraham <laughs> sort of obeyed. I like Abraham. Abraham gives me hope that there's hope for me. Okay, because Christy made this great statement to me the other day when we were talking about Abraham and, and why is Abraham being mentioned as this, this great guy? And I'm like, because I think God loves to give us hope, right? Here's Abraham and he's going to partially obey and go partially the way and he doesn't fully obey by leaving his family behind and he has to go a certain distance and the family member has to die off and finally when his family member dies off, then he continues the journey along the fertile crest and into the region where God has promised them that will someday be their inheritance. But Abraham comes into this new land as a stranger, as an alien, as a foreigner. God's made this promise to him that he's going to make him a great nation. And, and, and Abraham, when it comes to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's sitting there going, but God, you made this promise to me that I'm going to be this great nation, but I have no offspring. He turns to Lot and he says, is it, is it through Lot? Is it through Lot? That they, and God said, no, through your seed, Abraham. I'm old. Sarah's ancient. You know, like, <laughs> how's this going to happen, Right? I'm going to be in trouble for that one later. I know it. I'm going to get comments on that one later, right? That's right. Already are. But, you know, it's, it's Abraham's wondering how this is going to take place. And so what does God do? He doesn't turn to Abraham and say, you knucklehead, 
I am the God of gods, the King of kings. I made everything. How dare you speak back to me? How dare you question me? No. He tells Abraham to go get some animals. They cut them up. Divide them, and he causes Abraham to fall asleep. And God walks through these animals in a pillar of fire, and he covenants. He swears an oath to Abraham. He doesn't reject Abraham for his lack of faith. Rather, he says, Abraham, I'm going to take my promise, and I'm going to raise it up 100%, and I'm going to make it, my back it up with an oath. And I have to swear by myself because there's nothing greater than me. Oaths were something that were interesting in the time of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders had kind of learned a little trickery how to deal with oaths. And you could always know if the Pharisees or the Sadducees were being a bit shifty. Instead of swearing by God, which meant basically if they didn't do it, they were going to die, right? They'd swear by the altar, in the temple, or they'd swear by the gold in the temple, so that you know maybe if they really wanted to fulfill that oath, then 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 maybe. But the, it to swear by God, it's because God is the greatest thing there is. So God swears by Himself that I will keep my covenant, and that, my friends, is what we call an unconditional covenant. Like God is going to keep himself faithful to what he has promised. God swears by Abraham, to Abraham that he is going to make him a great nation. Does Abraham see the fulfillment of that promise? No. Abraham has one son of promise, Isaac. Now, notice I said son of promise, okay? One son of promise, Isaac. Abraham doesn't even get to see the fulfillment of this promise. He has his son in his old age, and he dies before the more generations started to be produced. I mean, you got, you know, Jacob becomes through the descendant through what's just going to come. And then Jacob, there's, there, there's quite a few sons there, 12. Okay, so we're, oh, 12. Okay, now we start to see that something greater is going to happen here. But at this point, one. But Abraham believes in the promises of God because of the one who promised it. God spoke. And because God speaks, the hope of our future salvation is certain. Because the promise is based upon his work and the accomplishment of what Jesus Christ did. His oath fulfilled in Jesus. It's certain. If you look here with me at the text, future salvation is certain because God's purpose is unchangeable. Look with me in verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. Our salvation is certain because God doesn't change. God doesn't go to Abraham and say, 
doggone it, Abraham. Why wouldn't you trust me with your wife, Sarah? Why did you have to lie about this? And then you lied once to Pharaoh, and you got to lie again. Finally, I've had enough of you. I'm changing my plan. No, because God swore an oath based upon his character and based upon who he is. And that's why Abraham's hope and Abraham's future salvation and Abraham's belief in the promise is certain because it's based upon the character of God. Thank goodness. Do y'all feel that a little bit? Because like if God's promises were based upon our obedience... Gone would have been God's promises long ago. The history of the Old Testament is replete with disobedience. God's grace and God's forgiveness. And God says, I will forgive you. I will make you a nation great again. I will redeem you. I will bring you back. Why? Because he made this promise. Because he is faithful to complete that promise. God's promises have never failed. If you look at Hebrews 6.15 here. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God's promises don't fail. And it's not based upon, you, you want to look at that, page, that passage and you say, well, Abraham did such a good job. But we know the story of Abraham. Thank God for the Old Testament, right? That we got Genesis because we can read the story of Abraham and we go, it wasn't based upon Abraham's goodness, but based upon God's faithfulness. In Romans chapter four, we read the story of, of Abraham and we see that the beautiful fulfillment of the promise of God is revealed in starting in chapter four, verse 16. And he goes to say, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom we be he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, and hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. And in Galatians 3, 7, it says this, Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations is fulfilled in the church today. Amen. That we can be called the sons of Abraham because we believe in the promises of God. Like Abraham believed in the promises of God. So we believe because we believe in a God and his promise and his oath to us that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And his promise is certain and his promise is sure. Future salvation is certain because God is incapable of lying. Can I get an amen? amen. I mean, come on now, because I'm telling you what, I have not lived my life without telling a few fibs, lies, outright lies. And I think that could be said of all of us. But there is one who never lies. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge 
might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. I've been asked before, why do we need the Old Testament? Why do we have the Old Testament? I think this is a great example of why we have the Old Testament. The Old Testament serves, A, as the demonstration of the need that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and He is the complete fulfillment of Scripture. But it is also to demonstrate that when we come to a promise like this in the New Testament, it's been demonstrated for thousands of years in the Old Testament. God remained faithful, remained faithful, remained faithful, remained faithful. His promises were here. He just remained faithful, unchangeable throughout the history of the Old Testament. Here's humankind, like all over the place, like having a high moment the next day, waking up, having a low moment. I mean, it's just like, my goodness, talk about like bipolar, like all of humanity is pretty much like manic and depressed, manic and depressed. Come on. I mean, as we sin and we're trying to live out the Christian faith. But God remains the same, and God doesn't lie, and his truth is so reliable. It is such a gift that God speaks, and every time he speaks, it's truth. Every time he speaks, it's what we need to hear. Every time he speaks, it's righteous, it's holy, it's good. What a blessing and a gift it is. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth, and your word is truth. God cannot lie. He is incapable of it. So our future salvation is certain because God can't lie. Our future salvation is certain because God is unchangeable. And, and so maybe if you weren't here last week, I did a theological tamp dance. I was worn out for days after last week's sermon. If you need to go back and listen to that, you might want to in order to understand how we got where we're at today. But for me and for my, my, my understanding and my theology, for me, my salvation is way more dependent upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I look to him to keep me in the palm of his hand. Because I know I would have jumped out of it a long time ago. Future salvation is certain because God's pledge backs up his promise. Look again here at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things. So what are the two unchangeable things here? God's promise of Genesis 12 and God's oath of Genesis 15. Those two unchangeable things. Means it's certain our future salvation. And he loves us so much that he backs up his promise with this incredible pledge. He knows we're going to be like Abraham. He knows we're going to struggle with faith. He knows we're going to lack faith. 
Lord, we sing a song, um, God is good all the time, um, during service. We sang it last week, I think. And part of that song is, Lord, help me believe. Help my unbelief. And God says, absolutely, I'll help it. I'm not going to beat you down because you struggle to believe. I'm going to make it possible for you to overcome your unbelief. Love the wonderful picture of Peter. Um, I've been thinking about that passage a lot lately. It was the first sermon that I preached at, at, at back then Littlestone Church when I came and candidated. I preached on Peter getting out of the boat. And Peter gets rebuked by Jesus. I think if you don't know the story, Jesus... There's a big storm going on. The disciples are in the boat. The disciples are fearing for their lives. They see this apparition walking on the waters. I think it's this angel, it's the grim reaper come to like, they're all going to die. Um, and and, and cry, Jesus cries out to them and says to them, you know, it's, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter, of all the disciples, I love this. Peter's a knucklehead, but this is, this is a good moment for Peter. Like, Lord, if, it, if it's you, call me to come and I'll join you on the water. None of the other disciples said that, right? All the rest of the disciples were like, I am fine in the boat. Like, this is dangerous. And, and Peter gets out of the boat. And what's very interesting about that boat, it wouldn't have been nice and still upon the water. That boat would have been rocking and rolling. Now, I don't like boats in the water. Just a confession time. God has a sense of humor. Put me on a lake, okay? Like, I'm not a great swimmer. I was born in Nebraska, joined the Army, not the Navy. Like, water and I don't get along great. So me trying to get, even when we're coming up to a dock, Darren Fricky's taking us out on his boat, and I'm going to get out. I am so unsteady, just like trying to step off the boat onto the dock. And it's like pretty much calm. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Peter just to get out of the boat. And he joins Jesus upon the water, and He's keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus. When his eyes are fixed on Jesus, man, it doesn't matter what's going on around him. He's, he's walking on the water with Jesus. This is, this is worship. This is a great picture of faith. But all of a sudden, some water splashes into the face. And all of a sudden, the wind blows across him like a big gust of wind. And he gets afraid and he takes his eyes off Jesus and he puts him on the creation. And he goes down. And Jesus, what I love about this text is the text says, immediately, Jesus reached out, stretched down his hand, and he lifted Peter back up. How far were they apart when, Jesus, when Peter took his eyes off Jesus? I don't know. But all I know is immediately, Jesus picked him back up. And he says, you knucklehead, Peter. <laughs> like, you of little faith. Like, didn't you, didn't you feel it? Like, you, we were eye to eye. We were walking. All that was like. But he picks him up out of the water, restores him, and he puts him in the boat. He restored Peter. Even more so when Peter demonstrated his greatest time of weakness of faith when our Lord and Savior was arrested and in trial and during his trial, Peter denies him three times. But what does our Lord do in the Gospel of John? He restores him. 
You see, these promises and these oaths, God expects us, God knows we're going to struggle to believe. He knows we're going to have moments of unbelief and doubt. And he says, I'm not just going to give you my promise. I'm going to undergird that thing with the foundation that can never be shaken, the oath based upon the character of who I am. And because I never change, because I don't lie, you can count on me. And in your moments of weakness and fear, you can cry out, Lord, save me. And we can count on our God to stretch forth his hand and lift us back up. Slap us across the head. We deserve that. It is for me. And restores. And he says, I won't change. I won't fail you. I won't quit on you. Keep your eyes on me. Our salvation is certain because of God. His promises. And I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. I hope that just lifts your heart like God is, good. God is there. And my, I can, like heaven is to come and future salvation is to come and eternity with God. And I can live in light of eternity even when I failed, even when I've had doubts and I've had fears because my God is the God who restores and redeems. He picks us back up. So how do we live in light of that certainty? And I think that's a really important question for us to ask this morning. And I'm so glad you asked it. So great job. The hope of our future salvation is an anchor to steady our souls in present trials. You know, um, John, when he spoke way back at the beginning of this series, he talked about this anchor. He talked about us being anchored and moored to Jesus Christ. And the text, once again, picks back up on this theme. So it kind of makes you wonder if the author, who we don't know, and we're not going to talk about that this morning, didn't have a little bit of a fishing background or an understanding of what it was to be moored to an anchor. First thing I want to say about that is future salvation is secure for all that have taken refuge in Jesus Christ. I want to give you another imagery. And Numbers 35, we're not going to turn there. Numbers is one of those books in the Bible that if you go to read it, you're going to drink a little coffee, okay? Because there's stories mixed in with a lot of like genealogies and other things going on. But, and, and also laws and how, to, how the Israelites were supposed to live. And one of the things that God had given the Israelites was this thing called a city of refuge. So let's say... Um, you're out working with somebody, and, and you're swinging an axe, okay? And the head of that axe comes off as you're bringing it down on that wood. But, and that head, and your buddy's standing over there, probably doing, not, not paying attention, and that axe head hits him square and kills him. Well, according to the law, the, the, the family could respond in kind. But, but since it was an accident, it was not a malicious murder, that person can flee to a refuge city, the one who accidentally killed his friend to a refuge city. 
And the elders of that refuge city will then determine if this person can stay, if it was truly an accident. And if it was an accident, he could stay there and live there and the family could not seek retribution. You're like, why are you bringing that up? That's really weird, right? Especially when we consider refuge cities in today's uh, political atmosphere. And we're not going to go there. Because when it says here, in Genesis, or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, listen now. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Where are we fleeing to flee for refuge? What is this talking about? It is talking about fleeing for refuge in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, we find refuge and complete forgiveness for our sins. You think back to those cities, were there people that accidentally killed someone and those elders of those cities got it wrong and sent that guy back out? Yes. And he was killed. Were, were, were there opportunities when that person was fleeing to that city of refuge where that, that person was, was not able to make that refuge city and was killed? Yes. It was an imperfect system. But in Jesus Christ, we find this perfect refuge. That all who seek to find refuge in Jesus Christ, all who seek to call upon him as Lord and as Savior and as the one who can wipe away their sins, in Jesus Christ, we find complete forgiveness and we are no longer guilty. We are now free in Jesus Christ. No longer bound by the law of sin and death. The person who fled to that refuge city, that's very interesting, had to stay in that refuge city because if they left it, they were free game. We come to Jesus and we stay in him and he says, guess what? I'm going to hold you. I'm going to keep you. Amen. And even when you run away, you can't run away from my grace and my forgiveness. <clears throat> Jesus is the complete fulfillment of this idea of refuge city. And that is why our future salvation is secure because the refuge that Jesus Christ provides is forever. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we will forever be with him. So what do we do? We must now take hold of the hope of our future salvation. In 619, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. A lot of times in Hebrews, we've seen this cry out, this call over and over and over again. Hold fast the confession. Hold fast to the hope. This is the response to how amazing Jesus Christ is, to the permanency of his work, to the completeness of his work. We hold fast to that confession. We persevere in the name of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. Amen. We persevere in him. It is his work we cling to, not our own. There is nothing you can do to earn any good standing with God this morning. If you didn't know this, I'll tell it to you again. We're all sinners, broken, 
absolutely bankrupt before God. It is in Jesus Christ that our sin is washed clean and we're given spiritual value and hope and holiness and righteousness. It's only in Jesus. Apart from him, there is no hope. I love the saying, and I'm, I'm not sure who said it, but God doesn't love you any more today than he did yesterday. And he won't love you any more today than he will tomorrow. And God won't love you any less yesterday than he does today. And he won't love you any less than he does, will love you tomorrow. Because God's love is certain, is complete, is promised for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't do anything to earn more love from God. And so he says, live in light of that. Hold fast to it, cling to it. That, that, that wonderful blanket. I know, men, some of you in here have got those blankets. Don't, 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 don't lie, right? That, that, that comfort thing that we cling to. Maybe it's a fishing pole, man, or it's a rifle. I don't know. But, but there's something that brings us comfort. That, like God is, through the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews, is telling us here, cling to these promises of God because they will bring you such comfort and such perseverance when the hope of our future salvation anchors us to wait on God in present storms. We have this sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as the forerunner on behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Theologians argue and, and agree, mostly agree that the book of Hebrews was written to a congregation that endured some serious persecution and hardships. And he is wanting to encourage them that there's this anchor for your soul. This steadfast place where God has promised himself to you, to keep you, to protect you, to love you. for all eternity, for forever. And so no matter what storm we may find ourselves in, that anchor remains. Now I want to put this in context of the congregation that this would have been written to. Since we see zero mention throughout the book of Hebrews, of the destruction of the temple. We believe Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. And we really believe there would have been mentioned because this book is all about the temple and Jesus being the high priest. God is powerfully speaking through this messenger of this word, preparing a people for time. When the thing that they identified the most with, that had been part of their lives for thousands of years, would be destroyed. We don't get how significant there is. Not even when the cathedral, the Notre Dame Cathedral burned in Paris, could it even remotely compare to the destruction of the temple and what it meant to the Jews. It would have been devastating, horrific for them to watch the conquering armies just come in and level it and destroy it. No more 
No more sacrifices upon the altar. No more day of atonement. No more psalms of ascent being sung as the, as the tribes would come from all over and journey to Jerusalem to go up there and offer no more blood flowing through the streets as the animals are being sacrificed. All of the feast of booze, gone, gone. Thousands of years of heritage and legacy, gone. He's preparing them for this. He's saying to them, you have a steadfast anchor of the soul. Because in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if temples fall. He is the high priest. He's the sacrifice, the final sacrifice. And you are now the temple of God. And he is with you. And he will not forsake you because his promises are based upon who he is and his character and his identity. He won't forsake you. And I know right now in this room, we've got some temple-destroying moments going on. Some of you have encountered things in your life where it feels like that temple was destroyed and you're going, Lord, what? am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond? My faith is weak. I hear your promises. I need that undergirding of your oath. I need to plant my feet on your character of who you are because I am shaken to my knees. Everything that I know to be true and good seems to be gone. Promises that were made that were not kept. Health that we have is, is broken. Intentionally began to really think, and John and I, during our time together, during sermon chat this week, spent some time talking about what, what different temple-destroying moments that we may be having. And I think our health is one. And for a small body of believers, we got a lot of health issues going on. Finances. Some of you this morning may be sitting here going, I don't know where tomorrow's food is coming from. I don't know how I'm going to put gas in the car tomorrow. I don't know what it looks like for me to live a year from now in Chelan. Prices keep climbing, my wages aren't climbing. It's tough. Jesus said, let him be the anchor to your soul. For he is the great provider. We've gone through a time of leaving a building that we'd been in for 120 years. That was pretty, pretty uh, crazy. Pretty scary. And kind of maybe it felt like for some people that the temple was being destroyed and God has used this to teach us a powerful lesson that the temple of God is us, the church body, and we can meet anywhere. Amen. We can gather anywhere and be God's church. Amen. Some of you have experienced major church failures and you are really struggling to trust the church. You've seen pastors lie, steal, manipulate. You've seen pastors 
cheat on their spouses, have affairs. You've seen churches split over the color of carpet and, and, and the type of music that's played. And you're like, I can't trust the church. And by all means, don't. Trust Jesus. Who died so that we might be the church. Some of you may be facing a divorce situation. Someone was unfaithful. Someone just decided, I've had enough. I'm not happy anymore. And God made it. God made it that it's a covenant relationship. That it's an oath that we take between man and woman. And that's devastating you right now. Let Jesus once again be the anchor for your soul. Be the king of your heart. And you're going to have times of unbelief in that. And Jesus knows it. That's why he's giving him his oath of promise. One of the things in today's society more than anything else that we struggle with that I watch people's faith just get torn to shreds is when kids' safety is at risk. Maybe a kid gets sick. A kid runs into the car in front of a car and gets hit. A kid drowns. And all of a sudden, God is no longer good. And the one thing that can restore your heart we reject. You see, God's goodness doesn't change no matter what we experience in this world. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he, will, he can and will restore you. In light of that, some people may think that it's silly, but even somebody was, I was talking with this week was struggling with this. The political climate right now maybe keeping you up at night. And it's no joke. Our nation's in a bad way. Amen. God is good. And whether he is, there's a Republican or a Democrat, whether, whether the Supreme Court follows the Bible in moral, legislating moral or, or judiciating moral decisions, God's not dependent on any of that. He remains. He remains. And, and if you don't know this already, I'm going to give you maybe a surprise this morning. America isn't God's nation. The only people that were ever identified as God's people were the Israelites. And we got grafted in as God's people. Nations rise and fall, but God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. I could go on. We could talk about global warming. We could talk about the three fingers. Oh, we laugh. But I've heard Christians on the radio. Acting like if that doesn't get fixed the way they want it, then God's no longer good. We got hospital situations going on. We got mayors races. We got all these things going on even in our local community. And we need to remind each other. Though that may, we may have a very large, 
a hand in the game on some of that stuff. No matter what happens, God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his promise to secure us and our future salvation does not change. So, what do we do? We cling to it. We cling to the promises of God. We cling to the comfort and the hope of being his child, knowing that his work has completed our salvation for eternity. And we cling to it, and we live in light of it. So when things don't go our way, when, when, when the person we don't want to get elected gets elected, we go, praise be to God, because my God doesn't change yesterday and today and forever. And my God's going to, and I know that all authority is appointed by God, Romans, right? And that God's going to use this guy for his glory, whether he wants to be used or not. Praise God. That's what my dog God does. When our finances fall, guess, guess what? It's all God's anyways, Right? So I guess he doesn't need it. Sweet, I don't need that. That's a burden to me. God wants me to be trusting in him more and identifying in him more. Praise be to God. But what's also crazy is we've got this. And God's also calling you not to go off on by yourself and be alone in the corner and be penniless in the corner. He says, I've given you a church body. Go lean into them. Go be part of them. Go tell them your need. I want to tell you something. If you have a need and you're not telling buddy about it, we can't really help. So bring your needs. Bring your needs. We can handle We'll work through it together as a church body. If we never build a building, and here we go, I'm going to get in trouble with this, but if we never build a building, but we take care of each other's needs well, and we love each other well, we'll be just fine. We'll be just fine. Because the family of God is not about buildings. It's about the people of God being used by the purposes of God for his glory. If God is taking your health, know he is good and what he is doing in you will be for your benefit and his glory and that's so hard to say. But I was reminded this week once again as I retold the story of my sister of dying of cancer at 32. My family's lived a little bit of that. And it's hard. But I know my brother and I would not be where we're at today. He is pastoring a church in Ohio. He got done preaching about three hours ago. Nice being three hours ahead. I'm here serving God. My mom and dad are faithfully following Jesus. Loving God. I mean, and we wouldn't have the relationship with God we have right now if we didn't go through it. We wouldn't know the intimacy and the joy of, of, of having God being our strength and our perseverance when we didn't even know which end was up or down. God was so good and so faithful. God is moving in ways in your life and your world is having some, a moment where it feels like that temple is being destroyed in your life. I want you to do two things for me this morning. One, 
I want you to find yourself on your knees sometime during this week and weep and cry out to him and say, God, I am struggling to have faith. Help me believe. And two, I want you to lean into the body of God. I want you to lean into the church family. I want you to say, I'm having a hard time believing. And you know what? We can handle that conversation. Like my faith is devastated right now. I don't know what to believe. It seems like the things that I thought God was promising to give to me and deliver to me have all fallen flat. And I don't know if I believe God is good. I don't know if I believe God is, his promises are secure. We can handle that conversation because we're family. And we'll point each other back towards Jesus. And we'll pray with each other. We're not going to lecture each other and tell each other how stupid we are because we've all been there. I want you to do those two things for me this week. So that together as a body of believers, because this book wasn't written to an individual. This book was written to churches. And he's telling the churches, hold fast to the hope. And the promises of God, and we don't do that individually. We do that as a body of believers. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for being the same yesterday, today, and forever, for being unchangeable, for not lying, for always being truthful for always working all things to your glory and your good, and for the benefit of those who are called your children, for never being far off, but always being near, no matter what, no matter what we say or do, you just remain. You've given us the Holy Spirit that we might be filled with the presence of God as, as the Shekinah glory of God came into the temple so you have come into us by the power of the Holy Spirit and you indwell us so that the world may know God has come in Jesus Christ. I thank you that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father day after day after day after day, never ever ceasing to ensure that the promises of God remain. That we're his children and we're held fast because of our great high priest. Lord, help us in our unbelief. May your grace wash over us as we cry out in fear. And in disbelief, as David cried out in the Psalms, restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. In Jesus' name we pray. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, one of the things that we do here on a Sunday morning <clears throat> is we talk about our God being our hero. You know, it may sound trite or too much like the Marvel and DC movies that are being produced, but God is the hero. 
And when we share our God stories on a Sunday morning, we always want to make God the hero of our stories. And so who wants to talk about God being their hero this week? Cindy, I got you. Um, well, it's been kind of an interesting journey, and these last, maybe last month, I think I've been finding myself distracted by things of this world, and um, things that seem glittery in my own eyes or whatever, and God's reminded me this week that He is my God, He is my rock, and He is the one that I should be keeping my eyes on, and I'm just grateful that He is better. So as we got together this week and we're talking about the message and studying the message this week, the thing that, that God really impressed upon me was the inerrancy. Having to have that belief, that understanding about the inerrancy of his word. Because everything that we're looking at, that you're, you're referencing from the basis of our faith, our salvation is in the word of God. And if we only take part of that word as truth and disregard the rest of it as irrelevant, either because of our modern society or whatever it is, we're shortchanging ourselves. How is it that we can only believe part of the truth and not all of the truth? And that just really, really mm -hmm. stuck fast with me that... And speaking for myself, what part am I believing as true or what part am I not believing? What am I taking of the world and trying to add into my belief and the truth of God's word? And God's word is preeminent. It stands alone. It is either our high standard or something else is our high standard. It's either authoritative or something else is taking authority over our our lives, our thoughts, and our attitudes. So that was really something that God just really Praise bore God. into me this week. I just really thank God for that. Amen. You were going to stand up. I already saw you starting to stand up. Did you, was that, were you not going to stand up? No, oh. but I can't. Well, I think you do have something to share this week. You had some, a pretty significant event this week. Okay. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. So, okay, so I guess last weekend I dropped, um, I had orientation at college um, with Kaylee and got to, um, got to have Clarissa with me. And we, um, yeah, I stayed the weekend, last weekend, and got to go to a service with her on Sunday morning and watched a little ceremony at the college that they they called it crossing over to become a, a Whitworthian. And it was just beautiful. Um, beautiful to watch. And every time they every time that song um, they sang it this morning, I cried. And I cried there. <laughs> and Kaylee just looked at me like, oh mom. And 
um, it's been a hard week, but it's also been, like I just, I got back to writing my blog, and which feels wonderful because writing is really important to me, and um, that's kind of how I really connect with God and really listen to what he's putting on my heart. And I feel like I'm going all over the place, but I'm just so thankful that I have God. I can't imagine um, not having him through this transition. And it, it's hard realizing I'm this single mom, empty nester. Like, what do I do now? But I know that God has this plan for me. And a huge part of it is, is still young life. And... Um, sharing the gospel with kids. Um, so I know I just want to be obedient to him, and, um, but it's, it's been a journey, and he's not done with me yet just because I'm an empty nester. Amen. <laughs> oh. Senor Glenn. It's a quick one. Don't go away. Um, we had our, our life group got together Thursday, and uh, just really simply, uh, the Holy Spirit really showed up and really helped us have an intimate time of encouragement to each other and prayer, and it was really special. So I just praise Him for that. Amen. I uh, had a chance to uh, visit Scott Wilmot on Friday, and um, boy, talk about an example of what, what Scott spoke of this morning. For those of you that don't know, Scott um, has scoliosis, and he had these titanium rods put in his back, and he's going to be about four inches taller when, he, when he's back. Um, it, it's, a, it's a, to me, almost unbelievable surgery, and he's gone through a lot of pain uh, because when they stretch your body back out again, aside from the rods going in your back and all that, um, all his muscles and tendons and nerves are now going into positions that they're not used to, and so there's a lot of cramping and, and spasms and stuff like that. And of course, there's medicine for that, but still, it's a lot of pain. And Scott looks great. Um, he's being very careful. He was wheeling around in a wheelchair on Friday. He, he can walk, but he, he just doesn't want to fall because he's, it would be disastrous. But through the pain and the discomfort that he's had, he's been able to just kind of breathe in every breath the promises of God, and, and thank you. It's just almost, and he was sharing that with me. It's just, he's just really living that right now. And um, he needs a little help uh, now and then. He can't do handyman stuff. Uh, so if anybody knows how to run a screwdriver or a hammer or whatever, uh, he could use some help with that uh, occasionally. And I'll try to help him with that too. We talked about snow blowing and you know, what's going to happen this winter and all that. Uh, but he looks great. He's really praising God. So I just wanted to share that. Amen.